between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees, because it's saying, actually, if you can pursue warming of 1.5 degrees, that's really what you want to do. Um, and then the other reason that it does that is because um, it can more, they can more easily control for variables closer to us, sort of thing, if that makes sense. Um, so the IPCC report goes through a number of different effects and what the difference is between 1.5 and 2 degrees. Um, it goes through coral reefs, sea levels, um, insect populations, um, a whole lot of things. Um, there's a great kind of New York Times infographic article, which <laughs> um, has beautiful graphics of all those different things if you're interested. But I'm just going to draw your attention to one sentence, which is this. Limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees compared with 2 degrees could reduce the number of people both exposed to climate-related risks, so-called catastrophic weather events, and susceptible to poverty by up to several hundred million. I'll read that again. Limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees compared with 2 degrees could reduce the number of people both exposed to climate-related risks and susceptible to poverty by up to several hundred million. That last bit, several hundred million, is a crazy number. That's everyone in the UK, everyone in France, everyone in Spain, everyone in Italy, and everyone in Germany all together. That's the kind of figure we're talking. And what I've just spoken about is just that gap of half a degree. Um, who's, who here has heard some kind of statistic about um, kind of 12 years left to irreversible warming or something like that? Can you just raise your hand? That's quite a lot of the room. Um, so that's from this report, that's the IPCC report. Um, but it is a little bit of a slight misreading, um, which um, is a little bit difficult to explain, but I'm going to try my best now. Um, if you're confused by what I'm saying, um, make it obvious by looking really confused or like going like that. Um, and if you're tracking, just be like, mm-hmm, and nod so that I know. <laughs> and then I can kind of slow down accordingly, and that's fine. Um, can I have the next graph, please? And it's a couple of slides, actually. Um, so this, no, thank you. Um, this next graph is from a UN publication called Understanding the IPCC Report. Um, and it, what it's showing is the emissions pathway for keeping um, to 1.5 degrees of warming. Um, and this is, <laughs> um, if you look at the kind of the black line, that shows emissions. Um, so currently we increase our global emissions by about 1.8% year on year on year on year. Uh, but if we're going to stick to 1.5 degrees of warming, um, then peak emissions, so that's when yearly global emissions are at their highest for all time, needs to be next year, so 2020. And then after 2020, we need like a really steep, steep drop, um, so a period of rapid decarbonisation, as shown on the graph. Um, so that's globally every country, or at least the majority of countries, showing like huge drops in emissions year on year. Um, and that's why kind of the 12 years thing doesn't quite make sense. So does it make sense to people if I say that if we stopped emitting all carbon dioxide tomorrow, we would still see a temperature increase because of the delayed effect that carbon has in the atmosphere? I'm getting nods. Great. Um, so that means that those kind of 12 years, they're not equal. So 
effectively the so we couldn't, for example, not do anything, and then on year 12 just be like, right, <laughs> time to get, put things into action. Really what we need is action now and consistent action that can achieve the sort of rapid decarbonisation on the graph. Um, now, <laughs> if we're having yearly emission increases of 1.8%, which we've been having despite you know, the Paris Agreement, um, which was great, then this graph doesn't look like the most plausible scenario ever. Does that make sense to people? Yeah. Um, so the IPCC report itself says that we're likely to see increases of temperature between 2.6 degrees and 4.8 degrees this century. Now, earlier when I said that sentence about the difference of half a degree, so that's 1.5 to 2 degrees, that's half a degree on that jump. So I'm going to leave that <laughs> as sort of a like open flag, I guess, of actually quite how um, serious the situation that we're in now is because we're expecting warming of a much greater extent than just that gap. And I think we're on the same page when we say that gap created a significant difference that we don't want to see. Um, is everyone still with me at this point? There is only one more graph to go. Um, <laughs> um, please, can I have that one, Connor? Yes, thank you. Um, so when the IPCC report says the word likely, what, they say, what they're saying is 66% chance. Now, 66% chance is the majority of 100%, so that's good. But 66% is not 100%. Um, and that leaves an unfortunate 34% unaccounted for. Now, outside of that range, some of it is below and some of it is above. And so the really difficult thing to think about is what about that percentage of risk that is even outside of that 4.8 upper ex like window extent? And so that's what this graph shows. So it shows the probability density. So it says, actually, yeah, most likely we're going to see warming of kind of three, four degrees. But we haven't taken off the table the possibility that it's actually much worse. And that the kind of six degrees warming level, um, that's really difficult for um, ecosystems to adapt to. And it's really difficult for human populations to adapt to. And that's kind of why Rowan Williams said what he did in that first video. Does that kind of make sense as to how someone might see that and then say the things that Rowan Williams did. Great. Um, next slide, please. That's the end of the graphs. Woohoo. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm just going to talk very vague terms about how we've got to where we've got to. Um, and that is that our um, global systems work on a very linear scale. So we extract resources, we use them, and then there's some waste and then we just start again. Um, so at the top image, you can see um, oil extraction, then you have nickel extraction, that's that weird orange river, um, and then it's a palm oil plantation at the bottom, and then different ways that we consume, so um, the fuel that we use to travel around the world, um, the food that we get shipped in, um, 
fast fashion and um, supermarkets and high streets and all the rest of it. And then you can also see waste, um, of which many people will have seen like the TIF and this is rubbish campaign and that sort of thing. Um, and at all of these stages, we emit carbon and other greenhouse gases. Um, and our intensification of these processes over the past 100, 150 years is what is causing that increase of concentration of carbon dioxide and then the temperature increase. And this process and the way that humans have started to affect the world as a whole and the Earth um, has led to the term Anthropocene. Has, are people familiar with that term? Not a few, but not everyone. Um, so this is the idea that we've kind of moved into a new geological era. Um, so the previous one was the Holocene, and now we're in the Anthropocene. And that's saying that actually what is defining about the Earth is our human activity on it. That's making the biggest impact, and that's really changing things. Um, <laughs> that's it for the science. Um, any questions at this point? Yeah, Lauren. Oh, there's a microphone. Oh, I wasn't looking for this level of prominence. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, um, so, the paper that you've cited, um, yeah, is obviously big peer review, blah, blah, blah. I'm completely sold. I've never, you like, I. I completely back everything you're saying, but there are people who aren't entirely stupid who, who deny that this is a thing. What is, what, what's their problem? Why is it that there's a question mark over this? Donald Trump springs to mind, but I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. Thanks. Um, yeah, this has got a really interesting history to it. Um, so actually the first politician to speak about climate change in the UK is Margaret Thatcher. Um, which was probably surprised at least a few of you in the room. Um, and so that was kind of, you know, late 70s, early 80s. This is starting to be flagged as like a real concern. Um, there's some really interesting histories that you can read on this about effectively this um, huge like lobbying campaign of fossil fuel companies and others disputing some of those... Um, the papers and creating noise around it. Um, and that's why that, um, there are some quite high-profile um, campaigns that um, one particular one is um, Exxon New, which is basically raising, like, actually, we had companies who knew the science and actively tried to disseminate false information and um, stop politicians acting or introducing environmental policy really interesting history, especially in the United States. There's one particular sc scandal that really, um, there's this whole thing about um, how a particular university had kind of misconstrued some facts. Actually, they hadn't, it was a leak, but it wrecked the reputation of climate scientists for a long time. And even now, the um, kind of percentage of the American population who um, doesn't think that climate change um, is real or exists or whatever um, is still much higher than in other countries, be partly because of that history. Um, so do go look into that. Any other questions? Yeah. Some sort of sensible people. I mean, 
good Christian people who, who are in that camp. And as far as I can see, I mean, it just seems, I just don't understand why there's an argument. You would have thought the science would prove it one way or another. But they, they try to claim that the current trends are still in the statistical control limits from the last, you know, X thousand years. Um, and I think that's the trick that, you know, they're not doubting that temperature's going up, but they're just saying we've seen this at various ice ages and things like that. But, but I mean, you're saying that this paper is, is, is really basically disproving all of that. Is that, mm. is that a sort of a reasonable assumption? Um, so what was that last bit? So, I mean, we're being invited to go along with, with what you've shown. It looks yeah. pretty conclusive to me. Uh, and, and no doubt you would say that that's a, a sensible way to go, that we, we've just got to just take a view on this and, and, and stop listening to the, the deniers. Um, so, <laughs> that is the view I'm presenting, you're right. Um, but you can go and read that IPCC report in full and you can look into the credibility of it, and please do. Um, and there are multiple different publications, such as that UN one, which take out the kind of bulk of the science that is a little bit harder to kind of understand the workings for and try and simplify it. And yeah, please do go look into that. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah, Johnny. Is it true that if we don't act now, in a few years' time, this, the, the ecology or something will mean that it becomes spiral, it kind of spirals out of our, like, we stop being able to act? Yeah, so you're talking about something called tipping points. Um, so this is the idea that at different levels of warming, and we're not sure which ones, when, where, etc you kind of create these kind of essentially like a feedback loop. Um, say an example is that as parts of Siberia get warmer, um, the permafrost starts releasing methane, and so you've got a greater amount of emissions being sparked by that. Um, I work by the principle that <laughs> basically the lower the emissions, the better, um, and that's pretty much true because actually we can't know when those tipping points come into play and actually speculation isn't um, necessarily super helpful and um, this will come out a little bit in the theological section as actually I think we have a responsibility regardless about what the kind of output is as to how we are acting and treating the earth. If that answers your question. Yeah, Fiona. Sorry. So I'd read last month that we'd already passed that point, is that just kind of like oh, it's, it's, that's a good media story to run, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and there are different tipping points already being identified, and people are like, oh, this is, oh, we didn't know that because this has happened, this would happen. Um, but actually, nobody can really know the big bit and be like, yes, it's absolutely pointless now. I, I, I don't think that is true. Anybody else? Poonam. <laughs> Yeah, so Paris is 2015, IPCC 2018. Um, I'm not sure, so Paris, yeah, so the question is, um, is Paris out of date in light of IPCC 2018? Um, so I would say that actually like IPCC 2018 matches to, um, Paris 2015, because it's saying, yes, 1.5 is the best 
here's all the reasons why. Um, and actually, there are, um, so IPCC, I should have said this, sorry, stands for Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, they have multiple reports on different areas coming out periodically. Um, the last year in October 2018 was a big landmark one, but none of the science is particularly new. Um, there's like a long history of this. It's just sort of what catches the wave. So Paris made it kind of salient politically, the kind of message that IPCC was um, kind of showing or doing that explanation behind. Any, yeah, Sasha. Do I think Paris 2015 is enough? Um, <laughs> I, um, I am thrilled that we have Paris 2015. It is wonderful to be like, look, we have a political consensus around this because it's a great way of holding leaders to account of being like, look, back in 2015 we agreed this, why aren't we acting in line with it? Um, from my understanding, a lot of the policies that actually came out of that or um, what was binding on governments wasn't that all policies then had to stick to two degrees. Um, policies were kept in line with three degrees. Um, so I'm sure there's more literature out there on that as well. Yeah, are we good to move on? I know this is quite a content-heavy evening. There's time at the end of the theology section for you to like <laughs> talk and chat and process a little bit more. Um, are we good if I move to the theology and do a gear shift? Great, I've got some nods. Um, so, theology. Um, I'm not going to talk too much at all um, about either kind of ideas of justice or about um, like the commandment to love your neighbor. That's not because they're not important, they're really important. However, I think people will more easily be able to make the connections between that section that we've just done and um, <laughs> faith through those avenues than. Um, kind of trying to attempt kind of an overview of um, creation within the biblical narrative, which is what I'm going to attempt now. Um, so for non-Saint D's people, we have a lovely curate here called Lydia, and she often preaches around the idea of three trees. Um, and this is the way of like understanding the narrative arc of the Bible around three trees that we see in scripture. So the first tree is um, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden in Genesis. Um, the second is the tree that Jesus is crucified on. Um, and the final tree is part of new creation. Um, and I'm sorry to Tim that this is still my favorite part of the building, um, but the inscription up here um, comes from Revelation um, and it references that tree. Um, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Um, and my kind of, um, what I would, in an ideal situation, like to be able to do um, is change the way that you read the Bible. So when you read the gospel accounts, for example, and you're looking for angels, you will see angels all the way from kind of Jesus' birth right up until his death. But actually, creation is a huge part of the Bible, and it changes the meaning as well. So I think often, I know that this was true for me before I started the slippery slope into standing on the stage. Um, when I saw or read something that, you know, talked about a rock or um, mountains and other parts of nature, I would kind of not notice it or I would read over, over it as sort of kind of metaphor um, and not 
really understand it as part of the meaning of the scripture somehow, or I, I don't really know. Um, but essentially, it would please me immensely if what I kind of give you the framework for here would change the way that you read scripture. So with that said, um, tree number one is um, creation. Um, so Christians have a little bit of a bad reputation theologically, um, and it's mostly due to one verse in Genesis, uh, which will appear on the screen, um, which is um, in chapter 1, verse 28, and it says this, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, <laughs> Christians have sort of got a reputation for taking this as kind of a free license of um, dominion over the earth and that whatever we want to do with natural resources, that is okay. Um, And it has created an idea that rather than being a part of creation, we're kind of set apart above creation. And this has also then linked to um, Christians having trouble remembering that God is not anthropocentric. He's not only concerned with humans. Um, Instead, God is communal and relational. He creates a communal and relational creation to which we belong. And in creation, we see um, at the very start of Genesis, the establishment of like a life-giving triangle of relationships. So that's God, humanity, and the earth. And that's um, kind of a replication of God as communal and relational himself. So we look at the Trinity and we see Father, Son, and Spirit, and God is communal and relational, just like the creation he creates. And so we have this set of relationships. And then in the Old Testament, where we have God and Israel in the land, that's like a smaller version of the triangle that's kind of paradigmatic for that bigger set of relationships. Now, when I talk about that triangle, that has a name. Um, It's called the Cosmic Covenant, um, and it's spoken about by lots of different theologians, um, including Augustine and Francis of Assisi. Um, And when we get, when we see in Genesis that um, kind of sin enters and um, Adam and Eve leave the garden, it's that entire set of relationships that fractures. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Um, But firstly, I've got a verse from Genesis 2, um, which is the kind of parallel account to the first chapter. And it adds detail to the narrative. Um, So this is verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. You can see the King James Version there um, uses the word dress. Um, And that's because it has the nuance of adornment, embellishment, and improvement. And likewise, the Hebrew for keep means to take great care over. So really, when um, God creates humanity, he creates us and entrusts us with a vocation of caretaking. This is where people are familiar with the kind of term stewardship. Um, But I will also think of it um, as kind of us being entrusted with a gardening vocation. So rather than... um, the kind of old stereotypical picture of Genesis where we get um, Adam and Eve in the kind of position of hierarchical rulers. We have a nuance of this vocation as humans being gardeners and Adam being the first gardener. Can I have the next slide, please? Um, So that's the kind of takeaway from this, um, that in the first first tree we have um, 
a, a gardening vocation. And when we see that break in Genesis, um, we see all three of those relationships break. Um, so God's relationship with humanity breaks. So in the first chapter, God walks through the garden, but then suddenly the physical distance between God and humanity is that much greater. Then humanity's relationship with the earth breaks as well. They're expelled from the land. But also God's relationship with the earth is broken, um, which is why in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, it says, cursed is the ground. Um, so that is tree number one, um, the first tree of creation, where we have our gardening vocation both established and lost. Did people understand that? Excellent. <laughs> um, we'll move on to tree number two. Um, so this is um, the tree of Jesus' crucifixion. Um, now we'll be familiar that Jesus' crucifixion is the Christian hope of reconciliation. Um, and I'm going to talk about in this section um, how Jesus makes a way for us to rediscover who we are in relation to God and the earth, re-establishing us in our gardening vocation and Jesus himself being like paradigmatic gardener, if you like. Um, so the brokenness which fractures relationships across the covenant, cosmic covenant are all restored. Now, Joe very helpfully read Colossians 1 at the beginning of this evening, um, which is on the next slide. Um, and it says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection are to us a reversal of the curse and brokenness of death. And one of the most heartbreaking things about life is watching what and who we love die. But that also applies to the rest of creation as well. Um, we're seeing at the moment an increase in the rate of species extinction, but also more generally, creation as well as life also involves death. And actually, Jesus' death on the cross is um, a release from death from all, for all of creation. And there, if you read the gospel accounts of um, Jesus' crucifixion, um, you'll see that there are earthquakes at both his crucifixion and his resurrection. And this can be read as a recognition by creation that Jesus is Redeemer. Um, and here's a recommendation for you. Um, John's gospel is beautiful um, and it also has a lot of parallels with Genesis. Um, so the most obvious one being kind of, you know, first line in the beginning, um, but it also continues throughout. Um, so if you read the kind of um, narrative for Easter morning, um, you will see um, several moments where there are parallels with the creation story in Genesis. Um, but one of the most beautiful things about it is when Mary comes um, to find Jesus on Easter morning, she mistakes him from the garden, for the gardener. Actually, theologians such as N.T. Wright have said, that's not a mistake. That's a poetic hint. That is um, John's gospel flagging to us that Jesus, as the last Adam, is a gardener. So he fulfills perfectly our human vocation to garden. Um, so that is... Um, tree number two. Um, and we'll move on finally um, to tree number three. Thanks. 
Um, so many of you here will have heard Lydia refer to um, humans living kind of between tree two and tree three in the now and not yet. Um, and that's the idea that we have a promise of redemption and restoration, which we believe will come to pass, but we don't yet see it. Um, and there are a couple of different elements to what I'm going to say here. Um, so firstly, because God is communal and relational, so is our redemption. So redemption is restorative. It gives us what we were always meant to have, which is wholeness of community and relationship. So that's all three parts of that triangle of relationships of the cosmic covenant restored. And that's why um, <laughs> we've sort of gone away from that in terms of kind of, um, if you think kind of soft Christian culture ideas of heaven um, or the new creation, which are kind of... Um, maybe a cloud and disembodied souls and um, amazing grace, the earth will soon dissolve like snow. Um, actually, I'm not sure how consistent that is with the picture that we get in scripture. Actually, the beauty of God's grace is that what has potential from the beginning is comes to completion and complete restoration um, at the end as well. Um, and if you think about... Um, well, you can start with Jesus and his bodily resurrection, um, but also think of something like the Apostles' Creed, where we say, um, I believe in bodily resurrection and the, um, no, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Um, we talk about um, life after death as actually not being um, something where we're disembodied, but actually the body is an important part of who we are, and that's restored to us after death, um, which does rather lead to the question of, just where the resurrected bodies are going to be. Are they going to be floating in midair? I'm not sure. Um, I think actually, just as we say that Jesus um, offers us hope whereby we are not um, tossed aside for something completely new, but that he restores what already is, that we also see that with the earth and that the earth itself will also be made new. Um, and the thing I, I, there is just a beautiful line that I just want to end that thought with, um, which is um, by a theologian whose name I can't pronounce. Um, his name is Hans Kuhn, something like that. Um, and he says, the kingdom of God is creation healed. The kingdom of God is creation healed. And I think that is just so beautiful and also makes a huge amount of sense of who Jesus is when he comes and healings follow him round. And what we see when we um, say, oh, yeah, the kingdom is here, what we mean is there's something of the fullness of redemption, and that is creation healed. And that leads us to the very final thing of the theology section, um, which is, what does it mean for us as Christians to carry this vocation of being gardeners? Um, and what does that mean amidst the brokenness um, that we see around us and when we're faced with death. Um, especially if we're thinking, we're looking back to that first section where <laughs> I um, told you lots of very serious things about um, the kind of outcomes of um, temperature increase. And I'm not really going to answer that for you, um, but um, it is something that I want you to carry into the next kind of section after the questions of reflection, which I promise I will explain. Um, so we have 
some questions to think about. What is our response to death going to be? Um, how do we witness our belief that Jesus is Lord, not just in an abstract sense, but that he's Lord over all creation? Um, how does that affect how we live in a time now which is focused on this extraction, consumption, and waste kind of element and model? Um, and how are we going to demonstrate the love of God for those around us? Um, so that's what's to come, those kind of different thoughts. Um, but to kind of wrap it up, um, what I'm hoping is that I've set a bit of context for how, as Christians, we're to reclaim a vocation as gardeners after Jesus, who are called to tend, caretake, and adorn the people and places around us. Any questions? Got a lot of blank faces. BC. Um, <laughs> um, so Lucy's just asked a question about like personal discipleship, um, and what I'd like to say here is that um, so when I talked about like that triangle of relationships. Um, often we think of discipleship as something that affects that kind of God to humanity side of things. That's kind of the angle that we go for, which, you know, isn't wrong. But it does mean that our kind of understanding of discipleship um, is a little bit wonky. Um, and it's kind of falls, I guess, into... Um, if we talk about like the kind of secular sacred divide, um, we introduce that into the idea of what discipleship is. So we say, um, well, discipleship is about prayer and it's about reading scripture, but also what it is, is witnessing to the fullness of um, redemption in the way that humanity relates also to earth and not just to God. Um, and I think that's exciting. Um, and it's also to say that... Um, yeah, land is spiritual, and the way we use land, that's spiritual, and the way we consume, also spiritual. Um, the land is the context in which our relationship with God happens. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Um, and if you, when you're reading the Old Testament and you see um, promises of God to his people, nearly always those come in the same kind of area or circle um, as, a, like, as God also talking about the promise of land. Um, so if you think about, um, there's a verse in Ezekiel 36 um, where it says, um, you'll be my people and I will be my God. And I reckon that's pretty familiar as like a phrase or sentence to people in this room. But actually the sentence before, it's not even a different sentence. It's got a semicolon. Um, it says, then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. So often when we see people and God mentioned, the land is also mentioned, but um, <laughs> we do what I used to do, which is just read over mentions of land as kind of a people group or just not even see them. But actually, God's promise is always of land as well as a restored relationship with God. Does that answer? Are there questions? Yes, at the back. Thanks, Rachel. 
Um, you talked about the promise in Genesis, or the command in Genesis to uh, be fruitful, to fill the earth and subdue it. Do you think that we here now in the 21st century should interpret, do you think that command means something different for us now than it maybe did in Genesis time? Or do you think it means the same as it did in Genesis time, but maybe we're just misinterpreting it? Sure. Um, so the way I might, I'm going to answer this slightly on a diagonal. <laughs> so at the end, you can let me know if I've actually answered your question. Um, so I think what's helpful to do is kind of take the principles and say, I no longer eat meat. Um, and one of the objections that my mom had to this was she cited um, the verse, I think it's somewhere on Peter, um, talking about um, there's no type of food that's off limits to us. And she was like, well, therefore it's not biblical to be you know, vegetarian. Um, and I was like, interesting. <laughs> um, because actually, yes, that verse I think can still be true, but I think it's possible that we can live in a context where the principles of love and justice lead us to make a choice that isn't, you know, explicitly kind of required or commanded of us, but follows from us looking at what kind of the impacts of our actions are. So I think to kind of go back to your question a little bit more directly is I think it is possible that it can mean things that I think the, the undergirding kind of character of what is said is the same, but the kind of outworkings of that character could be different when other things have changed. Yeah? Great. Other questions? There's one on the sofa. Um, one thing that we could do as individuals or as a life group to kind of uh, help climate change. Um, yeah, there are so many options. I'm so glad you asked. Um, so as kind of on an individual basis, I would say work out what your carbon footprint is um, and keep it in line with the one earth that God has given us, if you can. Um, you're likely to have three kind of main areas where you can make a difference. One is going to be travel, one is going to be diet, and the other is going to be where your pension is invested. Um, and there are great resources for all of those things. Um, and please do come and chat to me in the kind of 20-minute thing, because there is a next steps area. And um, I can also talk more about what to do in your workplace or other area. More questions? Yes, again at the back. Thanks for that. Um, following on from Vicky's question, on the kind of bigger level, I think there's you know, a lot of personal choices we can do, but sometimes it's maybe an excuse I use, but kind of would really like to lobby government or supermarkets or whatever it is. And what are your kind of um, advice on like, the best ways to do that? And is it government we need to kind of convince or is it or big organisations? And what's the best way to do that? Um, I'm wary of prescribing an either or because I think actually use the options available to you in whichever direction there are. Um, I happen to work for a charity that specialises in training people to lobby politicians on climate change. So if you would like to talk to your MP, um, then Hope for the Future has great resources for that and would be able to help. But there are lots of amazing different campaigns 
targeting specific organizations and that kind of thing. And I also think that's a great area to be involved in. One particular charity that I really like is called Share Action. Um, and you can go to the AGM of um, different companies and ask questions about, for example, how they're accounting for climate-related risks. Um, and not only is that really fun um, and insightful, um, but it, it does also genuinely affect change in those areas. Yes. Um, I love what you say about people and places, because one of the things that I've kind of noticed is um, it tends to be that Christians prioritize people. Um, this is massive generalization. Um, and then um, perhaps people without faith prioritize like the environment. So um, one of my frustrations is that a lot of people's objection to the fast fashion industry is purely environmental as opposed to the impact it has on people and the exploitative practices that um, they suffer from. So what do you think kind of as Christians we can offer to that, that people and how do we offer like a balanced view between people and places because it almost feels like people see the two as like at odds or even like battling against each other. I don't know, maybe that's just my interpretation of it, but um, I find that quite hard sometimes. Yeah, totally. Um, so what I'd say is that um, both concerns have the same root, and that's exploitation. Um, so we exploit the land and we exploit other people in the kind of, um, you know, sweatshops and that sort of thing. That's an exploitative labor practice. Um, and so it doesn't need to be an either or. Again, it's a both things. Um, and I think a, a lot in the kind of science section that I was talking about, I did focus on what are the impacts, for example, on poverty and that kind of thing. But actually, say temperature increase did absolutely, like, we all humans, you know, were absolutely fine, would be the same, whichever direction. I still think God would be displeased that we have this system where we are ruining <laughs> the earth in all these different dimensions because it's still precious in and of itself because it, it's God's creation and he is the creator. Um, I don't know that that has actually helped. <laughs> but those are some thoughts. Other questions? I might call it there and move on to the next section and then I'm going to be down at the front anyway if you think of something. Um, so if you are sat around a little table, underneath your table should be um, some different resources. Um, so you have um, one that is just a set of questions. Um, you have one that's kind of like a prayer order of service. And then you have a fun little booklet from USPG and Hope for the Future about faith in a climate, uh, changing climate that has lots of different stories from around the world. So you have... Um, what, 20 minutes? So that's going to take us till 9 o'clock. Um, and you can spend your time as you wish. So the options are the things that are underneath your table, just look at them, discuss them, talk about what your thoughts are having had me talk at you. Um, or there are also pillars at the back. Um, one of them um, is a prayer pillar, and it has prayers from around the world. Um, they're all prayers taken from USPG, which is a missions agency um, that part funds my job, so that's nice. Um, and then the other pillar is um, a poetry pillar, and they're all poems from a faith perspective about the environment. So 
<laughs> Those are some more options. And then finally, I will be down at the front um, to answer more questions, to talk about things. Um, and I also have um, some little postcard things that you can, if you fill in um, an address to your MP, my organization will just do the addressing and stamping and sending. Um, so if you want to do something practical as a response right now, then you can. Um, and the final thing to say is that when we come back together at 9 o'clock, I would really like um, people, um, if they feel able to, to share something of what they do in this next 20 minutes. So if you read something that you're like, oh, that is amazing, or develop your thoughts or have an interesting conversation, be thinking about what you might be prepared to share at the end. Is everyone happy to do that until 9? Great. Wonderful. Off we go.